Hello, and thank you for tuning in to New Glasgow Christian Church. My name is Stephen Weatherby, and I'm the pastor here at NGCC, a small rural church with a big heart located in central Prince Edward Island, Canada. We're so glad that you could join us. This week, we are beginning a new series of messages on the book of Haggai called Renew the Vision. Sometimes we believe that we are doing what God wants, but in reality, it couldn't be further from the truth. Haggai teaches us that sometimes the disconnect between us and God actually stems from behaviors that need to be corrected or addressed. However, if we are humble enough to listen and to follow his lead, we see in Haggai that he is a God who relents and gathers us back to him. Join us as we study God's word and ask ourselves how we can renew the vision in our hearts as we move forward into the future. The biggest life, uh, the biggest issue in life is priorities. I don't think you have to be religious to know that. We acknowledge it every day uh, in dozens of different ways. Uh, for people like me, I'm a list maker. Uh, so I always draw up lists of things that I need to do. Uh, and then we start numbering them in order of priority. For people whose bills they struggle to pay, they stack up their bills uh, in order of which ones are most important or the priority rule, uh, which company will be the most heartless. For some others, it gets no more existential than a box of chocolates. Do I eat the creams first or the caramels? I always choose the caramels. Most of us uh, manage our priorities uh, reasonably well at these levels. Uh, but interestingly enough, we also typically do pretty well at the uh, more frightening and major uh, decisions and priorities in life. For example, if our house catches fire, you're, you're, we're probably going to decide pretty quickly uh, what to carry out and what to leave behind, assuming you have time to do that. Uh, but life itself is more complicated. Uh, pre the preacher and author George Buttrick came one day upon a farmer who just retrieved a lost sheep. And when he asked how the sheep wander away, the farmer answered, they just nibble themselves lost. Uh, they go, he explained, from one tuft of grass to another until at last they've just completely lost their way and don't know how to get back. And of course, that's kind of what happens to us in life. Unless we purposely establish a structure of priorities, we will nibble ourselves lost. Uh, we'll nibble ourselves away at each inconsequential tuft of decision until our lives are gone and we don't have any idea what happened to it. Sometimes we believe that we are doing what God wants us to do, but in reality it could not be further from the truth. Sometimes we think that God is a priority in our lives, but he's actually pretty far down the list. We get distracted by all the, the business of life, whether it's chores or bills, a global pandemic, gas prices, war, and we struggle to keep juggling all these balls of anxiety and stress, uh, both of things that are in our control and things that are not in our control in any way. And we struggle to, to catch up and to get to that breath of fresh air that we are so desperately craving. Uh, so badly, so we work harder, or we blame someone or something for where we are instead of ourselves, or sometimes we just give up. Sometimes our lives get so complicated because we fail to see 
that all our work is in vain. We work, but we don't see the results. We invest our energy into all kinds of activities, thinking that all we need to do is try harder to get where we want to go, but nothing comes of it. This Sunday, we're beginning a new series of sermons on the book of Haggai called Renew the Vision. This past few years has been very hard. It's been really hard to be a human being these last couple of years. We've been cut off from each other. We've been isolated. Uh, we've worked hard to distance from each other and not get the people we love sick. We've worn masks even when it was hard to do so or when we found it hard to breathe. But we did it because of the people we cared about. We got vaccinated. And those are all good things. But after two years, regardless of the merits of all these things, we're still exhausted. And now that it feels like maybe, just maybe, there might be a light at the end of the tunnel, we're rewarded with inflation, gas prices rising through the roof, and potentially a new Cold War. Um, that seems to be what's been waiting for us on the other side of this. And so I think it's, it's just a really hard time to be a person right now. I imagine that the Jews who came back from exile had similar feelings, although their plight was much more severe than ours. They'd seen their country completely destroyed. Then they were taken captive uh, for something like 70 years. Finally, they were allowed to return to their homeland just to discover that they were returned to a pile of rubble, poverty, and unfriendly neighbors who were hostile. So they got to work. They, they conducted sacrifices in the destroyed ruins of the temple, and they started to rebuild their homes. They planted the fields and started cultivating vineyards. They worked hard to set themselves back up and establish themselves to restore prosperity and to build a city that they could be proud of in the ruins of Jerusalem. But it seemed like everything they tried to do ended in failure or gave them poor results. See, their priorities were misaligned. God had sent them into exile because they had turned their backs on God. And, and when they came back, they immediately tried to rebuild everything with their own hands, uh, setting their priorities and their own plan to return into being a prosperous nation above God's plan for them. And in the process, they'd forgotten why their lives had been uprooted in the first place. They built their homes, planted the fields, and cultivated grapeyards uh, or vineyards. But the temple sat in ruins. It was still a pile of rubble. They wanted to renew the vision for their nation, to, to get back to being um, worthy of note. Uh, but before they could do that, God had to remind them that they needed to evaluate their hearts and submit to his will. Uh, similarly, as we as a church begin to look ahead to the future and asking ourselves, what comes next after all of this is over? Hopefully, sometime soon it will be over. As we ask ourselves that question, we also need to evaluate our hearts and submit to his will for us as well. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, we're going to be reading Haggai 1 verses 1 to 15 this morning, and I'll put those up on the screen as well. So it says, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, 
governor of Judah, and to the Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Isaiah and said, it is, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're never worn. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with a hole in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and rebuild my house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be very little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on the labor of all your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Okay, so before we go into this too much, I want to talk about how they got to this point in the first place, how they got here. So over the course of a few hundred years, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah had a succession of kings. Some of them were good, most of them were bad. Uh, and eventually, God couldn't put up with the sinfulness of these kings. They were bringing in pagan and idol worship. Uh, and, and the reason he couldn't do that is because Israel had made a covenant with God to be his people. And now they were essentially cheating on him with other gods. So over the course of a few decades, God used the Assyrian and Babylonian empires to destroy both nations and take them into captivity. The Israelites and the northern tribes never returned to their homeland. Uh, they were essentially lost, and today we don't know what happened. We can kind of guess that they were just assimilated into the places that they were taken captive. Uh, but the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, Benjamin had not been assimilated. They returned. These were the tribes that made up of the kingdom of Judah in the south, which is why we call the remaining Israelites Jews. It's actually short for Judah. So all Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. So these two tribes eventually were allowed to return. And when they arrived, after 70-ish years, they essentially came to cities and towns that were left in heaps of rubble. They'd never been rebuilt. Uh, so they essentially had to rebuild from scratch, 
with essentially no money to do it. Furthermore, there were people living in the area who were hostile to them. They didn't want them to rebuild. And these were the people who came to be known as the Samaritans. So this book's not written too long after um, they'd returned from exile. They'd, they'd come back, they'd tried to settle the land, they tried to plant their crops, they built their houses, all of that stuff, but they left the temple in a pile of rubble. It was still destroyed from when they were taken into captivity many years earlier. So let's take a look at this. I'm going to start in verse 2. So in verse 2, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Isaiah, or through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourself to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? So this is an interesting statement. Um, the time has not yet come to rebuild the temple. That's their reason for leaving it as a pile of rubble. We can't be sure what they meant by that, by the time has not yet come. Um, maybe they thought that it wasn't God's will for them to rebuild it yet, and that starting the work would make them angry. Uh, there were some ways of interpreting the prophecies of, of God that made them think that 70 years had not yet passed, and there was supposed to be 70 years, but in reality it was well past. Maybe they were scared of what the Samaritans would do if they started to rebuild the temple, as they were a bit hostile towards them, and the Jews didn't want to make them angry. I mean, they just got back from exile after all. I think one good thing to take away from this is that the time is never truly right, by our definition, to do God's work. We are talking about serving God and building his kingdom in a world filled with sin and controlled by Satan and his evil forces. We will always face opposition, trouble, setbacks, and obstacles to doing God's will. The time is never truly right by human standards. Now verse 3 is God's response. They say it's not time to do God's work. It's not time to rebuild his house. But it's a good enough time for them to build nice houses for themselves, to decorate them and make them cozy. That makes no sense, is what he's saying. When we come to verse 5 to 11. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. And he repeats this twice. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have you fill. You put on clothes but are never warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So he's saying, give careful thought to your ways. You've built your houses. You've made them cozy. But everything you're doing, otherwise, everything you're doing to try and restore prosperity is failing. And then he repeats himself again and says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. You expect much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the green, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on your livestock and people, and on all the labor of your hands. This phrase, give careful thought to your ways, is repeated twice, and it kind of encapsulates a rebuke and a warning. 
reflection on the events of their lives through the lens of God's word had to take place if they wanted to understand what was happening around them. In Deuteronomy 28, I'm not going to read it today because it's really long, but in Deuteronomy 28, you find a covenant between the Israelites and God himself. And the general gist of it is that if they obey God and follow his commandments, they will be blessed in everything they do, including politically, economically, and agriculturally. However, if they do not obey God and keep his word and, and honor him and not worship other gods, if, if, they, if they disobey this, they will be cursed in all of these areas. So when God says, give careful thought to your ways, and then points to all the political, economical, and agricultural ways in which they are failing, he is saying, you are not putting me first. You are not keeping the covenant between us. So it should not have been a surprise to them that they were seeing their hard work come to nothing. God was trying to speak to them through things such as rising prices, inflation, and agricultural failures. So how did they respond when they were forced to confront that reality? Let's take a look at that. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the whole spirit of the remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. The response to Haggai's message is immediate and decisive. They hear the message and they obey and they fear the Lord. And that phrase, fear the Lord, you've probably heard that before in other places in Scripture. It doesn't necessarily mean to be scared of him, although that's probably an, an aspect of it. But that phrase, fear the Lord, means to have a deep respect, reverence, and awe for God's power and authority. It's used throughout the entirety of Scripture as a picture of the true, honest response that faith in God should bring. Uh, so because they turned away from what they were doing, because they accepted the message from God through Haggai, and because they responded with deep respect, reverence, and awe for God's power and authority, he then says, I am with you. And this follows the promise that we see from God throughout Scripture. He says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear that from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. That's a promise from God himself. And we see that when the Jews respond to that promise, and God reassures them that he is with them, then he stirs up their spirits, and they all come and begin to work on rebuilding the temple. All right, so that is the first chapter of the book of Haggai. Uh, the Jews who returned from exile wanted to renew the vision for themselves as the people of God. They had suffered for many years and finally had come out of that suffering to their homeland. 
The task ahead of them was massive. There's no doubt about that. And the resources to rebuild were scarce and their, their opposition was great. Now let's fast forward to 2022. Churches around the world have essentially been shuttered for two years, even when we've been able to meet, and we here have been very incredibly fortunate to continue to have been able to have services through most of this, uh, with the exception of some time in 2020 and in January of this year, we've been able to meet. But most churches have seen most of their ministries and events and outreach programs come to a, a complete halt. Uh, they've seen massive reductions in, reductions in numbers, and many of the churches are just struggling to financially keep the doors open. But hopefully, eventually, we're going to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and I feel like, you know, I don't want to get my hopes up too much, but it kind of feels like maybe we're starting to move a bit in that direction. And with that, churches all around the world are beginning to ask themselves, or are going to have to start to ask, how do we start to rebuild? How do we begin to renew the vision for the future? Where do we begin? And I think there's some valuable lessons here in the book of Haggai for us to consider as we ask ourselves that question, to make sure that everything that we do as a church is in line with God's will for us. So the first thing I want you to take away and the first thing that we must do is be honest. We must give careful thought to your ways. Jesus, or God says that twice, so it's important. Give careful thought to your ways. The Jews who returned from exile prioritized their own needs and desires over God's. Not only did they build their houses before the temple was built, they even decorated and put fancy panels around the outside to make them look nice before the temple was built, before the work even started on the temple. So for us today, I think that the question we must ask, and the first thing we must do, is to be honest with ourselves. Are we putting God first in our lives? Are we putting him first in the way that we plan for the future, in the way that we conduct ourselves, in the way that we make decisions as a church? Is the kingdom of God always our first priority? The second thing we must do is respond to what we find out when we are honest with ourselves. So when we're honest with ourselves and we ask that questions that, that we just talked about, the, first, the next thing we must do is respond to that in humility. When the Jews were confronted with their sin, in their case, the sins of indifference and misaligned priorities, they immediately recognized that they were in the wrong and immediately submitted themselves to God's will for them. So for us today, we must also respond with humility to whatever we discover about ourselves in honesty. If we are guilty of sin, whether it's putting our desires and wants ahead of God's will for the church or something else, are we ready to repent and submit to his will? Are we ready to show him that awe, reverence, and respect of his holiness and his power? Are we ready to fear the Lord? The third thing is assurance. And this isn't something that we do as much as something we receive and feel. If we are honest with ourselves, and if we respond in humility, and if we fear the Lord, he is with us. After the Jews returned, or after the Jews turned from their sin and submitted to God's will, he reassured them of this, that he was with them. 
They didn't know how they would rebuild the temple yet. All those problems were still there. They still were in poverty. They still had opposition. They were surrounded by hostile neighbors who didn't want them to succeed. But God reassured them and said he was with them. So they trusted him and began the work. The time is never right, but God is with us. If we are, um, if we were, if we are honest with ourselves and we give careful thought to our ways and we are in humility responding to him. So similarly, similarly for us, we may not know where to go from here. We may just be a small rural church. We might be few in numbers and without the resources that some of the bigger churches may have. And as we begin to look forward, hopefully to a new normal at some point, we may not know how we're going to move forward and rebuild as a church. And furthermore, coming out of this, none of us here have ever lived in a time more hostile to Christianity in Canada than the culture we find ourselves in today. But what we can take away from this first chapter of, of Haggai is that if we are honest with ourselves, if we give careful thought to our ways and if we respond in humility to God and fear him and make him our foundation and make him our priority, the center of everything we do, he is with us. So as we conclude today, I'd like to share this verse from Romans 8, verse 31 to 32. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, did not, he who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for all of us. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? As we begin to consider what it means for us to be the church moving forward, as we begin to rebuild and to renew the vision in our hearts and in our church, we must begin by evaluating our hearts and submitting our wills to his. If we fear the Lord, if we give him the honor and priority that he is due, if we are for God, then he will be for us. Regardless of our size, regardless of obstacles or opposition, regardless of whatever challenges we may face. And if he is for us, then who can be against us? So before we can rebuild and renew the vision for our church, we must submit entirely and wholly to him. So as we leave here today, my prayer is that we would examine our hearts with honesty and give careful thought to our ways. My prayer is that we would fear the Lord in humility, repentance, and submission. And my prayer is that we would all feel the assurance that he gives us, that we would all know that as we move forward into the future, God is for us. He is with us. And if the God of all splendor and glory is on our side, then who can be against us? Thanks for tuning in. We hope that this week's teaching was a blessing and an encouragement to you. If you live in the New Glasgow area, we would love for you to come and join us for our Sunday gathering. For information on service times, location, and more, check out our website at ngcc.ca. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week.